I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. When I first saw Anne's paintings, I couldn't believe it. The quality of the craftsmanship and the incredible soul and emotion of the animal coming through, it's a truly female perspective of wildlife. She's a world-renowned wildlife artist and conservationist. After visiting a refuge in California for big cats, elephants, and other endangered species that were retired from being used in the media, she began melding her artwork with her love for animals. She began creating dramatic pieces that provide emotive portraits of wild animals, especially endangered species. In the decades since, she has developed a remarkable career as an internationally recognized artist and a champion of animal conservation. Through her frequent visits to wild locations, Anne witnesses animals firsthand and records the face of nature through her Portraits of the Wild series. She draws only what she sees and viscerally feels from the animals' perspectives while immersing herself in the natural surroundings. Now in her fourth decade as a fine artist, Anne has expertly used her work to raise money and awareness for endangered animals. She's active in several animal conservation organizations and serves on the board of directors for Project Hope Foundation and is a partner of Earthfire. She's a personal friend of mine and I'm just delighted to speak with her today. It's an honor to be on the earth with someone that profoundly talented and connected with wildlife. Welcome, Anne. Well, we had a conversation yesterday, just a beautiful free-flowing conversation about the nature of art and animals and what's so important. One of the things that was so, you said so beautifully yesterday is how good art with animals, which is what you do, helps us feel not alone. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, probably one of the reasons I'm still so content with my subject matter, uh, I'm in my, heading into my fifth decade with the same subject matter, which, you know, for any artist, that's really something. You know, artists tend to jump around, they make uh, leaps of thought and then they change it up. I have changed my style here and there, but I'm still very married to the, uh, uh, the animal imagery. You know, and sometimes the, the cultures that I meet living closely with animals, say the Bushmen in Africa, I do also like to draw them because really it's the same discussion as an artist. I'm reaching into a rectangular shape, we'll call it a canvas, and I'm trying to touch and remember the experience of the animals I encounter and also the people who live closely with animals that I encounter. So it's really, it's not a flat canvas as much as it is the door that I've opened and I'm reaching into. And that's what it feels like. And in regards to feeling alone, let me speak to that. Uh, you know, especially making art, whether you're writing as you do or painting like I do, it's a solitary endeavor. And the fact that we all have evolved, our, our frontal cortex isolates us even more so, I think. And the, the 
it's interesting that people talk about their search for identity. It's like that sounds like they're trying to reinforce the solitude, doesn't it? Instead of opening up to all of the rest, you know, that search for identity is it, that sort of a crutch, you know, in modern times to not deal with something more important. It's like if you're so inwardly directed, which really selfies on cameras mm. or, or all of the stuff that people do that seems so narcissistic, it, it is kind of a crutch and we tell ourselves it's important to have our own style and our own flair and our identity without addressing the identity we share as other earthlings. The identity we share, the, the, the wolves and the bears out there have an identity that they openly share with no filters. They openly share it. In fact, part of their survival depends on being open and sharing. They don't have the clutter of frontal cortex like we do. And it's like, okay, so frontal cortex allows me to be an artist or you a writer or, or, or a scientist to take notes or a musician to compose a beautiful concert. I get it. But the fact, I think that the animals, I think don't have the idea of clutter to their experience. They experience everything. So they hear a concert in the wind in the trees or they, they sing when they howl it's a spontaneous, natural, holistic thing. We have to come at it from this intellectual place. It's hard for us to get underneath the filter and back to the thing that's analogous to those animals out there. It's hard for us to get back. And that thing that makes it hard also isolates us. And so I think we were talking about cultures. And I, I will refrain from calling them primitive because really the mechanism I'm going to talk about is quite sophisticated. The mechanism of perhaps in some cultures leaving their body through a trance or singing back to the animals and, or having chants or drum rhythms that, that transport them out of just their own personal experience and into the greater experience. You know, those old cultures, uh, they have something they're still connected to. And I think we've lost that. I think we've become mired in justifying our frontal cortex. <laughs> you know? What do you think about that? <laughs> but how do you relate that back to not feeling alone or helping us feel less alone? Uh, well, <laughs> When I go to an art museum and I find the one or two pieces that speak to me and I stand in front of them and for whatever reason, the artist has brought to bear their mastery of what they're doing and their, their vision and what they're saying. And that has allowed me, the viewer, the consumer to drop the artifice of soul intellect and just engage with the piece of art. That's a huge success in art. When somebody stands in front of a piece of mind, for instance, and they get emotional, right? I see them get teary 
best compliment in the world or you know and when i'm in a museum and i have that experience or or when you're sitting at a, at a concert of some incredible music and you're transported you have forgotten that you're witnessing the work of someone else if you, you you're not thinking that you're just experiencing something and so if art can unlock the ability of a human um, with what call it the tools or call it the, the years of, of trying to master your, your concept or what, whatever it is if you can provide a transcendent moment for someone else with your art then you just in a, in a way brought them into your same territory and that's when you're not alone the animals do it naturally the animals have a sense of place and of being in the place we lose that because we're so busy 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 with all of our humans activities that we forgot something older and more basic i always wonder about those cave artists susan you know the cave artists that uh to our knowledge the first people to chronicle the outside outline of a bison and why what would be the compelling nature of dragging your materials into a cave with a torch it was difficult getting up to the ceiling. We know that they had to bring in scaffolding materials, which means that they had help. It wasn't just one crazy artist alone. It was a group of people intent on this uh, gesture. You know, and what was a gesture about? It wasn't, they weren't making art. Art's not a concept then. But they were having a moment of objective awareness of something that they had experientially had outside of the cave with the animal so that the here you have the beginning of objective thought you would have to have a tiny bit of objective thought to remember remember they didn't have sketch pads remember they didn't have cameras those beautiful beautiful drawings of bison and lions and everything were done from memory Memory was big. I mean, I think our memories have atrophied. Listen, I can hardly remember where my car is parked anymore because now I have a stupid fob on the keys, right? So the memory atrophies and like, so memory is hugely important to animals. It's how they remember to migrate where they need to go or find the food source or how to raise their young because they were taught by their parents. Memory was a much bigger factor. But now you introduce this objective uh, tiny seed probably mostly in humans, although I'll argue I can find examples of art in other species. We're not alone there either. But that little bit of objectivity, we love to call that objectivity intelligence. We, we label, we give it a lofty word, that objective quality. And I would argue it's not always intelligent. Wars, toxic chemicals, um, treating people poorly, those are the result of objective quantification, mm -hmm. right? So the thing that, that could make a beautiful painting on a cave wall has evolved, developed, been embroidered, whatever you want to call it, and now we have children being separated from their parents at the borders for indeterminate amount of time and being justified. That's an objective decision somebody made in an office. It's not a reactive decision like being in the same room with those kids and hearing them cry. It's an objective. You see where I'm going with that. It's that the objective seed that might have been responsible for a beautiful painting on a cave wall 
and is indeed part of what I do as an artist and what you do as a writer, is also warped, twisted, and brought to bear on some pretty ugly things. It's not balanced with heart. Exactly. It's separated from heart. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would not be warped. I agree. And it's the abstraction that we do. Mm -hmm. Trying to make scientific objective, but you say objectivity is the danger. Too much heart is the danger too. It's a balance that we need. We haven't found it yet as humans. We right. rather urgently need to. Uh, I would like to go back and are you finished with this thought? Yes. I would like to go back to the idea of seeing great art in a museum and how you, if it's great art, you begin to enter into that artist's experience. You feel what they feel, see what they feel. You're enriched by the whole thing. And the sense of connection is what makes us get really emotional. Um, I think that only works with great art, not good art or ordinary art. What is it that makes great art that does that? My own theory, before he was an artist and a professional, correct me on that. Um, my own feeling is that we're in the line of truth of the universe somehow. We somehow we've tapped into something that's profoundly true. And we've done the craft so that we have the craft for it. And somehow we're in tune with something. And good art is beautiful, and you get some nice stuff, but it doesn't have the impact of great. But do you agree, and what is it that makes it great? Well, you know, I'm often struck by this when I'm in an art museum. There are many pieces on walls in museums all over the world that you'll hear people say, oh, my five-year-old can do that. We hear it all the time. And they're not wrong. A five-year-old, although they may not be making, by a critic's value, great art, they are making an honest piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. And you go to art school mm -hmm. and you learn all this stuff. And you spend, the joke is you spend the rest of your life trying to forget everything you learned mm -hmm. in art school. And, and that, that's a little extreme as in wording, but what is meant by that is you want the techniques and exposure to materials that you, you had in school to become like muscle memory, but your greater work is trying to get back underneath the layers of the frontal cortex, back to when you were maybe five. And when you put a mark on paper, you felt the mark. You didn't, as a 30-year-old with an MFA, let's say, um, decide before the paint hit the canvas, oh, this is the perfect place to put it. If you're a five-year-old, you just put it, and it becomes the perfect place, okay? so. In, in criticizing art and putting art into the categories of good art, I would say that I look at children's art sometimes and I get a feeling. Mm -hmm. I can, I'm transported because of their honesty. They're not burdened by art history yet or, or hopefully not critics, you know, at that point. And uh, there's something genuine and, and beautiful about that. And, and I would also say, no coincidence, children generally communicate well with animals, don't they? They're attracted to animals, they reach out for animals, and animals are also conversely, usually very tolerant of human children. You know, and I think that that's because, you know, very much so we have children and animals have maybe one thing in common, that uh, they're not yet cluttered. Mm -hmm. You know, the children aren't yet cluttered, so the communication's easier. This isn't developed yet. Right, exactly. So, you know, your struggle as an artist is to get underneath 
Let the intuitive guide you. Let the muscle memory of all your training inform your arm, but then let go. And that's when the best work happens. You know, I've seen, I've seen pieces that weren't necessarily acclaimed by anybody, but that moved me, really moved me. And then I've seen pieces that, that people go on and on and on about. There's been more books written about the Mona Lisa, for instance. I'm not a particular fan of that painting, I have to tell you, you know, they call it sacrilege, it's not my favorite painting. You know, I think uh, he did other work that was far more interesting. Um, but anyway, the idea of great art, it's like that's so individual and it's so different. And I'm sure that right now there's, there's somebody looking at their Elvis painting on black velvet when they're having a transcendent moment. And who am I to say that's not authentic as an experience? you know the viewer brings something to it's it. the honesty that you're talking about that makes it great then i think so mm. but you know not for nothing the viewer the viewer's honesty in approaching art like a critic a critic by and large has lost their ability to be moved mm. okay because they've made it a business it's a, an occupational hazard for an art critic music critic whatever critic to walk in and, and by somebody else's standards that they were given assess whether something's good it's really ridiculous you know it's really ridiculous a, a critic would call art a noun art is a noun to a critic art is a verb to an artist and art is also a verb to an open mind right a critic sees it only as a noun how sad you know um something you said that really interested me was um animals here in concerts in the wind, the song of the bird, the wind in the leaves, and the grasses. So you're saying animals feel beauty in art. Do they also make it? Well, of course, I can't get into an animal's brain, but I will tell you things I have witnessed. Mm -hmm. So there was a time when I was very heavily invested in producing images of marine animals. I was living on the coast out in California. I spent a lot of time in the company of several dolphins that were in captivity. And while I was there, they had a little room called a hydrolator that they let me sit in. It was at the bottom of the tank with my sketch pad and I would be there for hours. And the dolphins, you know, at first they're, they're very interested. Why are you here? You know? And then they, they kind of relax and they do their thing. And I saw the dolphins start to blow bubble rings. Okay. Now I tell people about this. If you haven't seen this, you're going to think, you know, that I'm crazy or I do drugs or something, but this is what happened. You see a dolphin by themselves, separate from the other dolphins, go to the bottom of the tank, which is perhaps 40 feet at the most. They kind of hunch over where their shoulder blades would be. Their eyes kind of go closed and they emit from the blowhole on the top of their head a perfectly circular, tiny, it's like a wire of silver. It's a perfect bubble. And it's, and how they do this, because you know, the hole on the top of their head isn't a hole. It's actually more of a uh, flap that closes like this. So they've learned to manipulate the surface here, like people who make smoke rings when they're smoking. So this tiny ring comes out. Now what happens is the dolphin backs away and regards this bubble. Now it's air. It's going to wobble upwards as the, air goes upward it expands so the bubble goes from a tiny thin silver bracelet looking thing up to 
a bigger hoop like this, and now it's thicker like that, like a rope. It stays intact. How do they do it? When the time it gets from 40 feet down to the surface, it can become as big as a hula hoop and as big around as this. And they watch it. So I've, I've, I've been watching the dolphins do this, and they'll watch this creation hit the surface, and they'll do it multiple times. Sometimes they'll go up with it, and they'll cradle the ring with their pectoral fins, and they'll make it dance a little bit. And then I saw, now this really blew my mind, I saw a dolphin blow a ring and follow it up. It was about this large. They blew a second ring underneath the first one, which rose faster. They somehow had put more air into the second ring, and it rose up very fast. The forces of air molecules and waters, these two undulating bubbles that are circular, are rising, and they joined and became one big. So the dolphin is watching this. I'm watching it. I'm watching the dolphin do this. Let me tell you, there is no way you cannot call that art. It's fun. It's a, it, because it doesn't last. There's plenty of artists that do work now that doesn't, that don't, those things don't last. They're meant not to last. It's a performance piece. It's mm -hmm. a dance, whatever you want to call it. The dolphin's doing it for fun. There's no quotient of survival that I can see. In fact, they don't want to do it with other dolphins. It's a solitary endeavor. I so related to this. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, we consider their brain power, their cortex and so forth. We put them on a, a plane of being a higher thinking individual, like gorillas and chimps, humans, you know, and dolphins and a couple of other animals. Dogs are beginning to be more evaluated as being higher. Now, I don't know, I haven't lived with wolves to know if they rearrange the forest, you know, to their liking, or maybe they dig a den with certain types of curves that don't answer anything. They do a deliberate harmony with the whole of the house. Harmony with the house. Beautiful harmony. And different types of harmony for different moods. How could you not call that art? What's the difference between, I mean, because we catalog it on paper, uh, you know, really, when you start talking about the differences, they, they start to minimize, I think. That example of the dolphin was gorgeous. I want more. Uh, oh, uh, well, okay, well, you know, I have seen, and you know, I can't quantify this, and I'm sure any scientist who studies elephants is going to be rolling, you know, with anger over this, but I have seen elephants doing things in the dirt that are interesting. So, you see a baby elephant pick up a stick. It's hard for them when they're little to actually hold something with the trunk, but they pick up the stick, and then they drag it around in the, in the sand and the dirt, and then they'll keep dragging it around. It's like, well, are they just involved in carrying a stick or is the mark on the ground something that's part of what they're doing? I cannot say it isn't. Who can say that? No one can say that. But those marks aren't important to that little elephant, right? And big elephants pick up things and move them around before. You know, it looks better over there. Uh, you know, I don't know. Interior decoration for elephants. I don't know. You know, and the blue bowerbird, I mean, you, you heard about the bowerbird that lays out blue objects in a perfect semicircle, weaves a perfect bower, a, a little bit of architecture over his place, and he's trying to entice a mate, or so they say. Maybe he's just making art, and a female thinks that's groovy. You know, I mean, why does it only have to be trying to entice a mate? That's a human label on that. You know, the fact that a female comes over, well, that could be just the gravy, you know? I mean, like, come up and see my etching sometime, right? You know, <laughs> I don't know. 
but it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. So you think they have a sense of beauty as much as we do. I mean, if you were a Martian looking down at us and you had to quantify why we do things, you say as much as we do, actually a sense of beauty is not in the forebrain. A sense of beauty is something deeper. So that's perhaps why you're saying they have the same sense of beauty in the way that we do. We can talk about it, we can objectify it, we can do all kinds of other things, but the fundamental experience of beauty is definitely not a forebrain kind of thing. I think that's so true. How well said that we do objectively talk, we're doing it now. We're talking about beauty, not only as viewing beauty, but in making beauty. We're talking about that. Mm. We're not doing it, we're talking about it. To the extent I can, I try to feel it as I talk about it, so that as I speak it, some of the energy of the feeling and the beauty comes out in how I speak. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us to try to do rather than take our words and disconnect them from that so they become empty, abstract words, to always keep them rooted in feeling. Well, good writing. You know, when I read a good writer, I think that would be uh, something I would agree with. When I read a terrifically phrased sentence, it's just a thing of beauty, you know, or a paragraph. And it evokes. Yes, very evocative. It evokes, which is from, from that deep place. Mm -hmm. Do you have other thoughts of um, animals making art? Yes. How about whales singing in the ocean? You know, that's an interesting thing. So the whales, as I understand it, the uh, humpbacks in particular, the humpback whales have a song, and then every year they add a new stanza to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the other pods in other areas of the world somehow know that and add the stanza to their song. Why? Is there some survival quotient here? It's just beautiful. I mean, and if you see them singing, it's very interesting to see that these humpbacks hanging in the water without moving a muscle. They, they hover and they stay at the perfect buoyancy while they're singing. I think I've seen it where they're, they're usually heads down doing this. And the sound, if you're in the water with them when they're singing, it goes through your body. Mm. It, it very much is felt. The acoustics of water and our bodies are mostly water. You really, really feel it. But the fact that they add stanzas is amazing, isn't it? Well, for if it was just about mating, there would be no need. But the fact that they they find it beautiful to add, you know. Now maybe they're more attractive as to their audience if they add a stanza, but. I would say any rock star with teeny bopper groupies uh, has experienced the adulation of audience. So really, are we any different? You know. I tell you that our bears love being adored from a distance, but they want the adoration. <laughs> they want their appreciation and their attention. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are there other things you think important to share? about your feeling about art, beauty, animal, wildlife, why you continue being so fascinated by it, and it continues to be a growth for you, even though it's the same type of subject. Well, yeah, you know, uh, we were talking about this before, and it's like, I think that you have, at least I, let me say from my standpoint, entering my fifth decade on the same subject matter. And so I have 
a creative inertia. My idea keeps me going, a creative inertia. But that said, most artists have these sudden leaps where let's say you're doing something for so many years and then out of the blue, you try a new technique, a new color pattern, new brushes, completely new whatever. You can still be doing the same subject matter, but you make these leaps. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, you know, everything has a component like that. So we have inertia. You have an inertia here. You mean a positive inertia? Oh, yeah. Because well, it usually means a negative feeling, bored, etc. Oh, no, positive inertia just as well. Yeah. You know, you're at positive inertia here is everything you've created at Earth Fire that enforces, that, that, that reaches out to people, that, that tells us that we're not alone, that these are our sentient creatures that are worth being saved on their individual levels. You know, everything you do here, for, and as many years as you have, you have a inertia, an inertia going forward, right? And every now and then, right, like me in the studio, out of the blue, you get an idea, right? It's like a, a sudden pop. And it, it's not taking you away from your subject matter, but it's an interesting th phenomenon. I often wonder, like, where does the, where do these crazy ideas come from when I'm in the studio? It's an interesting problem. I think uh, when you don't have enough ideas, it's time to get off that horse, right? If you're, I have too many ideas. Mm -hmm. You seem to have too many ideas, right? I think. Um, that's part of what keeps us going is that we keep having this, um, these things bubble up to the surface. So I'm going to say that my drawing and, and my art, I see it as also a phenomenon that you can employ looking at other things. Is that, yes, you have creative inertia, but then you have this pop, right? So you have, for instance, right now we're having a lot of inertia. It's negative in our country about division. You know, and things are, are fanning the flames of division. They have their own inertia born of their need to control. Okay. So divided, polarized, it's, it's just terrible. It's just a really, it's more isolating than anything. People think that, that joining a polarized team on one end or the other is joining a tribe. It's like, it's not, it's actually more isolating. I find that to be a sad thing. It's like, no, no, no. You, 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 you put yourself in a small place now, not a big place. We talk about the Bushmen a bit, because they're so different. Yes. The clever segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Bushmen. You know, the Bushmen are interesting because they... But you spend a lot of time with them. First. I do. I'm in the Kalahari Desert, uh, sometimes twice a year in Africa. And we, there's one particular group of Bushmen that we've become very close with. And we became very close with their um, the patriarch, who also serves as a shaman for the group and their leader and uh, you know he died a few years ago and we were very much saddened by it and I got the email in America about his passing and the amazing thread of communication from people all over the world there were people from Austria and people from Australia and people from Vietnam that had somehow bumped into this little guy this leader and he was the most unassuming person I had done a drawing of this guy and given him the drawing. And you know, he didn't even know it was of him because he had never bothered to look in a mirror. His family with signs and their, their language, which is clicks, told him 
that is an image of you yourself. And he had never known it. So he was looking at my, so what I'm saying is that the, um, they don't have the isolation, the need to see themselves as a separate person, right? The mirror thing just isn't all that important to them. We have a hard time imagining not looking at ourselves in the mirror at least once a day to see that we're not too crazy looking, right? And some people are obsessed with it, right? But for that group, the sense of uh, individual was not nearly as important or pursued as the sense of a group living with the bigger group of the wildlife around them. So uh, the, the fluid nature of their reality, the fluid nature wasn't governed by we are units, we are individuals. Um, it was a comfortable reality that if they needed to or they wanted to go into a trance, they could leave this particular carriage and go join the carriage of a lion, which is part of their cultural heritage, the trance dance, which I experienced. So I had the great fortune of, of having a trance dance performed for us and hearing lions roaring in the, the background and being told by my interpreter that is your friend. He's out there roaring at you. And I said, he is? What is he saying? And the interpreter said, don't, can't you understand that? Because she was also from that tribe. And I said, no, I can't. And she said, he's saying thank you as a lion because you did this teaching of his kids during the day. And uh, I was still moved by that. I mean, what better thank you could you get than that one? I mean, the common language we had was the animal's roar, even if we didn't share the same human language. And so that's another, to them, they, I don't even think they think of themselves as separate from the animals. You know, I think this is just an easy interface for them. They live with it. They can hear the stars making music at night. They think we're poor for the fact that we can't. They don't understand how we don't hear that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the Bushmen are really magical people. But they do illustrate that it's possible to forget yourself, yourself, and be joined by a much greater community, be it other human beings or the animal nations out there. They, they remind me of that. It's a huge source of inspiration for me at home. And that's how you do your attempts to get into that state. I do. I, I have to say that uh, I've always had that uh, feeling of leaving this and feeling as I'm touching the, the lion's face, let's say the wolf's face, of touching myself as a wolf, right? So it's almost like I'm the object in the painting and the human hand is touching with a paintbrush. It's like reconnecting somehow. That's what it feels like, you know? It's like being in two places at the same time, you know? Your yeah. paintings are exquisite. They're not unlike any other paintings I've seen. They are so vivid of the animal's being and soul. Um, you want to be rich and you're not, which is a shame. It, it's, you're doing it a little bit what the Bushmen do. Another thought that I had when you're talking about this gentleman, um, with respect to painting, not knowing himself separate, it made me just go back to the cave painting thinking. I don't know why, because it, it's sort of, they're being the animals they painted, perhaps. 
they feel those animals. Mm. Yeah. And I that's think why, that's a good way to paint too. And that's why the paintings are so gorgeous. Well, I, I appreciate that. And their paintings as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, the Bushman art, for instance, in Africa is some of the oldest artwork done by hominids known now. So they also, even though they have this concept of being at one with their environment, they also had that seed of objectivity enough to put artwork on a wall, mm -hmm. right? The seed of it. Now, I can tell you that these same people, this is one of the very oldest cultures still living on the planet. What is some of the oldest? Right. And you find them out there, and they're still living, wearing skins and making ostrich shell necklaces, you know, on their skin and living in the desert that would kill me in two days. I mean, these are just amazing people. And, uh, and they're very deep people. You know, they don't suffer for uh, things to think about. I mean, they're very deep in their thinking. You know, I mean, when, when I when I managed to be with the, the Bushmen and we managed to share some common thought, I, I know immediately what they're thinking. It's like they somehow convey it to me mm -hmm. without English. And I certainly don't understand their language, you know, the clicks. But you can understand uh, uh, cadence or forcefulness and eye contact that comes with it at the same time you know like when you're with an animal and you can let's say you're you're at close quarters with a wolf and you hear the wolves panting and you see the wolf looking at you and the cadence of their panting is almost like a cadence of speaking and then they stop i think that means something you know it Without assigning it words, I can assign it a feeling. You know, words get in the way a lot. You know, but it's it's kind of what we have: words, visual imagery. You know, we have both if we'd use them. If we'd use them, yeah. If we'd use them. But you know, humans can be so duplicitous and hard to read. Yeah. <laughs> it seems that there are forces that want to destroy beauty in all its forms. Destroy art, destroy animals, destroy the bushman, destroy beauty. They want to destroy anything that's beautiful. Any thoughts about that? Yes, it's a fear-based concept to destroy as a way to control. If you can't, if you don't have the wherewithal to open your heart to just view a beautiful lion, if you don't have the capability to connect with this old stuff, then my opinion about trophy hunters in particular is that they want to destroy. Why? Then they can take the skin and put it on a form, pop some glass eyeballs in and have it in their living room. It's like they've dominated it. It's like this need to dominate because they don't know how to let go and just be with for whatever reason. No, and I'm not talking about people who hunt to eat, mm -hmm. right? Even the Bushmen hunt to eat, mm -hmm. right? They're very respectful. They have a ritual that they do after they've killed an animal. But you see, a trophy hunter doesn't act that way. What is their ritual? They stick their, their, their boot on the animal's neck and have a picture? Not just that, horrible as it is, but in general, we seem to want to destroy anything beautiful, kind and good. Yes, you're, it's, it, that is something 
I agree with. I mean, it, I I do kind of go off on a tangent because this thing about trophy hunting right. is is big for me. Yeah. Um, but you're right. There are people who would rather see no one have great art than to just let it be. There are people who are that jealous, afraid they'll never get it, don't like the fact that they're excluded from an experience, so they'd rather eliminate the experience. Like the people who shoot up people, you know, uh, randomly. They don't know these people. Why would you do that? If you're so frustrated with the, the world, why would you take that away from someone else? It's a control issue. It's an anger issue. And I think that anger comes from lack of connection. And so, you know, this is something that Earthfire really addresses, and I really love that. It's like, if we can get the connection to come together again, if we can happily and joyfully show people, look, you can get there, mm. too. You can get there with us, right? Mm. It's like, it's going to be a ripple effect. They're going to be people who go home and they've never had that experience that so come here. They're going to go home and go, you can't believe I looked into the wolf's eyes. It looked back at me and I had a moment, right? That's what you're after to get that connection back. This is, and we've mentioned this before, the conservation of empathy, mm -hmm. right? Empathy is an endangered thing right now. It's being chipped away. And it is the thing we need most. Mm -hmm. It's the thing we need to put before all else. Mm -hmm. Everything needs this empathy up front before we take action, mm -hmm. right? Because Otherwise, yeah, or you're condemned, you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Or you make decisions that are relatively useless in the long run. Decisions like, well, I can't think of one right now, but you don't make decisions based on the connection and the awareness that comes from the connection, and therefore the decision is truly good for you and the other being. Mm. We make objective, as you would say, decisions without taking in all the, that really important evidence that's nonverbal. Right. And we just make scientific objective decisions that miss the heart of everything and therefore miss any support, real support of life. Yeah, there's so many things that, that want to separate us. <coughs> I mean, society as well. why your art's so important, is why the work I do is so important. We're trying to connect. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, and I think, and I would suggest this too, is like, you know, you think about zoologists or field biologists or veterinarians, or anybody at all that has ever spent any time working with and helping animals, right? And they, and you ask them, well, what got you onto this pathway? What, why are you doing this? What, what was the earliest moment you can remember that leads in a straight line to where you are right now? For me, it was a dog that I was friends with. And that dog and I bonded. And the next thing along the line was the movie Born Free when I was a little kid came up and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And the next thing after that was meeting a movie star that had over 400 animals that she was taking care of other, because they were retired movie animals and they would have been just shot otherwise and seeing that, that the noble purpose there and how much energy she put into that. And now these many years later after making art for all these decades and I meet you and Jean here. And I see, oh, you see how, how wonderful that is. That, again, we're not alone. We, there are lots of people working on similar pathways, mm. right? And those pathways come from the earliest, earliest, earliest place where we were able to empathize. Because not sympathize. Yes. Empathize. Exactly. It's a beautiful moment. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
This is Dr. Susan Eyrick for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening.